the story goes that uh, at the end of Baudelaire's life, after 47 years of just absolute vice and misery, uh, he finally died of, a, I think it was a heart attack. His mother, a long-suffering woman that she was, uh, didn't state that she wished he had never bankrupted the family. She didn't wish that he had never contracted syphilis. She didn't wish that he'd never uh, started taking laudanum. She wished that he had never written a line of verse. And even assuming that she knew in that moment the kind of contribution that he had made to French letters, to world letters, I keep more and more, I'm starting to think she might have had a point. I'm Matthew Buckley-Smith, and you're listening to Slee Ricketts, a podcast about poetry and other intractable problems. That name might be a mistake. So uh, I help out with a um, poetry magazine, a literary magazine, um, which for the time being will stay nameless just in case they want to disown me when this comes out. But um, uh, we sent some review copies of uh, some new poetry collections to a guy who's written some stuff for us. And uh, it had been a little while since we heard from him, so I wrote him the other day and and just checked in. You know, hey, uh, what about those books you read? What did you like? What do you think? What do you want to review? And he wrote back a very polite note saying, I don't really want to review any of them. I didn't like any of them. I haven't liked much poetry any time recently. You know, I offered to send him some other stuff. And, I, you know, his, his final response was uh, that it just, all poetry in general feels so far away from him and really uh, brings him no pleasure these days. And uh, he's, his stomach really is, you know, is turned on it as a whole. And... You know, um, this is a guy who's uh, won several big deal poetry prizes. He's a um, Stegner Fellow, a Lilly Fellow. Um, published a book of poems not long ago after winning a prize. Um, has, you know, a, a, every reason and more, uh, far more than, than I do even, to, um, to like poetry. And when I heard him say this, my honest immediate response was, oh my God, I know exactly what you're talking about. Of course, because poetry's the worst. It's terrible. Uh, and it, you know, the, the odd thing about this, um, so in order to like poetry, in order to be the kind of person who is, is into poetry uh, beyond, you know, elementary school and, and maybe even then, you are... Um, you have to be uh, just a just a nut. I mean, if you were to to write a biography of a uh, of a poet, an honest biography of your average poet, 
and you just substituted into the biography the word heroin for poetry or poems, you know, there, there would be very little difference, uh, very little inconsistency in terms of um, failure, humiliation, <laughs> disappointment, relationship to family, friends, marriages. Uh, poetry is terrible for you, and uh, it um, ruins lives, and it's hard to encourage kids to turn to it. I mean, more, more seriously, though, uh, it, you know, it's a, it's a thing I've noticed among my friends and peers, my wife, me, I, uh, people who've really devoted themselves to poetry uh, for decades, have just begun to lose any taste for it. And and this is where my you know, heroin comparison really falls apart because, you know, people quit heroin, but not because they lost the taste for it. It's a it's a bizarre thing, and it's something I don't know how to account for exactly. But you know, hearing this uh, from our would be reviewer uh, gave me a little bit of of um, cheer, encouragement, or at least made me want to you know try to answer this question. And this this is part of what I'm I guess setting out to do with this silly little podcast. Um, apart from uh, you know, provide a, a, an audio recording in real time of a uh, midlife crisis, which is, you know, pretty much what half the podcasts out there are doing anyway. Uh, but, you know, I, I thought I, I wanted to see if I could answer this question. What the fuck is going on? Uh, wh- why, why have I lost so much of my taste for it? And, and, you know, my wife and my friends and this guy, um, when it ought to be, it has been, you know, at the center of our lives for, for quite a long time. Now, I, I want to head off right here a an obvious um, suggestion <laughs> that I imagine some of you uh, might be uh, just itching to bring up, um, and that is uh, Ben Lerner's book, The Hatred of Poetry, uh, which... Uh, was published a few years ago. Let's see. What's the copyright? It's published in 2016. Uh, and uh, it was, you know, this is uh, Forrester and Drew and was published a great acclaim. He's, of course, a very celebrated poet and, and writer of fiction um, who may, you know, in some ways seems to have had his own turning away from the art forms. He seems, he seems not to be going back to much poetry after having turn to, um, you know, autobiographical fiction. Uh, but this is, uh, is a terrible and stupid book. He's a very, very smart guy and a very talented writer. And this book, The Hatred of Poetry is just dog shit. Um, just terrible. Uh, I've, I've already written about it at some length and so I don't want to go into it, um, too much here, but, uh, you know, the basic argument of this book is that, uh, it's twofold. One, uh, I, Ben Lerner, have uh, a sort of a rage and a hatred toward poetry because uh, I imagine that it could be a perfect thing. And in fact, in practice, it's always uh, a, a bad, fallen, dirty, failed thing. And the second part of this argument is that also uh, everybody, not just poets, is exactly like me, which, you know, the, the whole thing just reads to me a little bit like a like a very eloquent toddler's reckoning with object permanence, um, you know, 
I have the cake. I can't eat the cake and still have it. If I cover my face, am I still here? So, uh, you know, I just want to um, set that aside and say the hatred poetry is something to talk about. Again, I'll see if I can provide a link in the um, show notes to something I wrote about it a while ago. Uh, but that's not quite what I'm talking about here. And, you know, the, the, the simplest proof of that, the simplest proof of the difference is that individual actual poems, even by, you know, what he would call great poets, I, I, I would as well, um, are the things that most infuriate Ben Learned and most set off this hatred of poetry. And in fact, the only poetry that would not inspire this feeling is uh, poetry in heaven, ideal poetry, is some kind of platonic vision uh, that has nothing to do with actual words and actual speakers and actual brains and feelings and people. So um, for me, though, I find that the, the only real effective antidote to the malaise, to use the, our reviewer's word, uh, is, is reading an actual poem that's actually good. And I, I want to come back to that uh, at the end of this episode. Because, um, I mean, the, you know, the truth is that I, I still read and, and you know, write some and edit uh, poetry and care about it um, in a way that isn't quite, you know, it's not quite the way you care about your drug habit. It's not quite the way you care about your religion. So maybe, you know, it's a little bit like maybe, I was raised devoutly Catholic and um, don't believe in God anymore. And, you know, there's a little bit of uh, nostalgia. So maybe that's part of it, but that doesn't seem quite right either. So, the, you know, the, the, the goal here, though, is that rather than just try to figure all this shit out myself, um, I wanted to try out some things, uh, uh, reading, talking through this with luck, doing so with some uh, friends and acquaintances and maybe even enemies um, on this this funny little project uh, with a just ridiculous name. Um, so uh, I want to get to all of that in good time, but today I want to focus on a... Um, a much smarter essay than, than Ben Lerner's, um, an essay uh, published in uh, the New Criterion um, for National Poetry Month by um, Adam Kirsch. It's called On Getting Poetry. Quick word on National Poetry Month, which is a silly holiday, but uh, more so on the New Criterion, which is a weird magazine. Uh, it's a monthly culture and politics commentary magazine that uh, it's, it's, you know, it's broadly conservative and uh, publishes some, some very anodyne commonsensical commentary, a lot of sort of noxious and horrifying, you know, right-wing commentary. And then it also publishes some pretty decent poetry and some pretty decent poetry criticism. So it's a weird thing. It's not, um, yeah, there's, there is an uneasy alliance between uh, conservative politics and what we call formal poetry today that, uh, you know, almost every formal poet I know is uncomfortable with, but it's hard to cut yourself entirely free from it. Um, I don't really want to get into politics a whole lot in this 
podcast, but I don't sympathize with the overwhelming majority of what the new criterion has to say about this stuff. I just think that they have some good commentary on poetry. I'm not even talking about William Logan's, uh, though I think I do want to take some time to talk about Logan later on in another episode. Today, though, I want to get to uh, Adam Kirsch's essay on getting poetry, which I think is a, is a pretty good title, and it's a pretty good essay. I think it's it's not quite right all the way through, but it's uh, he's a smart and thoughtful guy and a, a terrific poet, and uh, I want to I want to pull it apart a little bit. So we'll do that right after a very short break. So the Adam Kirsch piece is called "On Getting Poetry," uh, which is, as I said, I, th- I think is a um, it's a good title because it part you know partly because it's very plain spoken, but also it gets at um, the experience of poetry, or the you know the uh, frustrating lack of experience of poetry that people might have in feeling like they don't get it. So you know I have a special fondness for an even. Uh, bias for uh, essays on poetry that start at the beginning. Um, You know, I almost feel like every good book or essay about poetry should be basically an introduction to poetry. Um, This uh, essay, I'm only going to talk about certain parts of it because some of it's, um, well, some of it's so introductory, but uh, it reminds me a little bit of another very good introductory uh, essay on poetry called uh, How to Think Like a Poet by Ryan Wilson, uh, who, who's a, a friend, I should say, um, as, as probably goes without saying, that um, it's such a fucking small world, poetry, uh, especially certain corners of it, that, um, you know, it's uh, chances are pretty good that, that any given name I mention, if it's somebody alive and in America, or even not in some cases, Maybe somebody I know. Uh, so take uh, everything I say with a grain of salt, which you probably were anyway. So um, on getting poetry, Kirsch begins with, I'll just read from the opening paragraph. <clears throat> a subscriber to this magazine writes with a problem. Although I have advanced university degrees, I have never gotten poetry. He's not alone. I hear the same thing regularly from people who love to read novels and biographies who are undaunted by string quartets and abstract paintings, but find poetry a closed door. No one is more aware of this disconnect between poetry and the reading public than poets themselves. The debate over why poetry moved from the center of literary culture to the outskirts of the academy and how it can regain its place in the sun has been going on at least since Dana Joya's landmark essay, Can Poetry Matter, appeared in The Atlantic in 1990. One um, and and he uh, all right. More recently, the poet and novelist Ben Lerner devoted a short book to explaining the hatred of poetry. The poet critic Stephanie Burt, perhaps taking that hatred for granted, titled a po- book about how to read poems. Don't read poetry. Uh, all right, so he's um, he's starting out from uh, this you know, this basic question of um, that I think many people have, and I think it's, it's partly a result of the fact that poetry is so poorly taught. Um, in elementary school, and part of me wishes that it were, uh, I think in some ways it may be better not to teach it at all than to teach it um, the way that it's uh, taught today. And uh, this, you know, uh, Kirsch does make this point that um, poetry, as he puts it, it's it's taught as if it were the vegetables, when really 
uh, it should be the dessert. But of course, you can't really teach dessert in school. Um, here, I'll read a little bit later on. Um, uh, he makes this argument that I think is understandable and is partly true, but sort of misses a big point. So um, he's talking about how fewer and fewer people are, to, you know, coming to poetry as a popular art form, um, and uh, um, uh, oh yeah, well he says basically that Larkin, Philip Larkin, made this observation, and, and you can make the same observation today. Uh, where, you know, with fiction and music, people buy it, though he, he may not be paying attention to the book market uh, for fiction these days. Um, whereas the Poetry Foundation, with its $200 million endowment, looks for ways to control people into reading poems. Um, the Poetry Foundation, by the way, which, uh, um, God love them, they do a terrible job, just terrible. Just how, how could you spend that money less effectively? But, um, so to get back to Kirsch, uh, after he... Um, gives a jab to the Poetry Foundation there, he says, but the comparison isn't entirely fair. Yes, poetry is meant to give pleasure. In his preface to Lyrical Ballads in 1802, Wordsworth said that the poet pays homage to the great elementary principle of pleasure, by which he knows and feels and lives and moves. And this is uh, Kirsch again. But like many adult pleasures, poetry is an acquired taste. We don't grow up surrounded by it the way we do with pop music and movies, whose conventions become second nature. Rather, Poetry is to our usual ways of reading and writing as classical music is to pop or as ballet is to dancing at parties. The medium is the same language, sound, and movement respectively, but the conventions and values are very different and require some effort to get used to. What's more, the history of English poetry stretches back 700 years, give or take, so reading some of the greatest poems means coming to grips with ways of thinking and uses of language that are opaque to a 21st century American reader. Okay, so this is true as far as it goes. Um, you do need, you know, I guess part of the point he's making is that, you know, where ballet and uh, classical music um, were once popular music, even if for only, you know, a, a, only a certain slice of the population, they were, that was once popular culture. They're not anymore. And so in order to appreciate them, we have to sort of become amateur historians as well and kind of re-immerse ourselves in that, guess what, um, Philosophers call the hermeneutic circle, um, you know, imagining ourselves into the past in which one might read this with pleasure or, or take this in with pleasure. And that, you know, that there's truth to that. Uh, but it also seems to me that there's there's a there's a kind of a key point that he's sort of alighting or he's 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 there's a little bit of a sleight of hand here because uh, poetry is an acquired taste in that you have to acquire a taste for it. But um, unlike beer, say, or hot sauce, um, it, it, it remains acquired, right? Like, I mean, which is to say, like, it's, it's not uh, hard necessarily to read, um, uh, a, you know, a very elementary poem today, Candy is Dandy, but Liquor is Quicker. But um, to the extent to which poetry is an acquired taste, I guess is what I would say, you have to keep acquiring it. You know, uh, for the most part, actually acquired taste. Horror movies are an acquired taste. You know, it's pretty hard to watch one until you get used to it. Um, as, as I said, there are, you know, and there are other uh, foods and drinks and, that are acquired taste. Coffee is an acquired taste. But once you've acquired it, it's second nature. 
And I'm not sure poetry ever quite is, or at least it's not the same way that a pop song or a, um, a piece of music in general or uh, a movie is. You know, I, I've acquired poetry as a taste about as well as one could, but there's, uh, it is, it, it is, um, it is not immediate in the same way that, you know, some other, you know, what we call pop culture today is. I don't know if that's because pop culture is changing or technology changes, but I think the comparison that comes to mind as um, gross and awful as it is, is that, uh, is the comparison to, you know, sex versus masturbation, right? That there's, you know, one is clearly easier and readier to access than the other, but, uh, what's also true is that there's a very different kind of satisfaction that comes with one and the other. And that satisfaction, the deeper satisfaction, you know, joy, you might talk about the joy of sex. You, you probably don't talk often about the joy of masturbation. Um, and that's because there's, uh, a, you know, an investment and a care. And I don't, I also don't buy that it's just a matter of being harder, right? I, I don't think it's just that, you know, I hiked up the mountain. So now that Coke tastes extra good. I, I think there's just something else there. You know, I, I don't have the answer, but I think that there's something Kirsch senses and is slipping over. Um, and maybe that's fine for an introductory essay. So um, we can move on from there. He does offer a distinction that I just find to be silly, um, which is that he says, he talks about Rupi Kaur, who's a, a famous Insta poet, maybe, you know, as he mentions, maybe the most famous poet in the world right now. Um, Certainly her book of poems, Milk and Honey, is just fabulously successful. Uh, and she's got a huge presence online. Um, and her poems uh, are fine. They don't do anything of any interest to anybody I know who cares about poetry. But I don't begrudge her fans their enjoyment of her. Um, setting aside you know, questions of like Instagram being kind of a lifestyle uh, promoting medium. The, the distinction that, that curse offers is that we should call, he says, it's not right to say that, you know, the Rupi Kaur and the other Insta poets aren't poets or what they write is not poetry. He says, rather, we should say that what they write is poetry and what say Wallace Stevens writes is art poetry. He says, it's more useful to distinguish between art poetry and other kinds of writing that go under the name of poetry, just as music distinguishes between art songs and popular or folk songs. And that feels silly to me, partly because I don't want to use the term art poetry, but also partly because uh, while we might use a term like art house cinema, you know, uh, what Tarkovsky and Bergman uh, and Fellini made is, is movies. And what Michael Bay makes and Steven Spielberg and uh, uh, Eli Roth, would they make that? Would they also make movies, and we don't have that big a problem being able to separate those. Um, it, it, instead, it feels like a art poetry as a as a label feels to me a little bit like a a note from your mom excusing you from gym. That if we call it art poetry, then it's sort of it's okay that it fails. I'll talk a little later about what I mean by fails. Um, let's keep going through this essay. Um, so there is, I think, a really wonderful 
a section late in the essay where Kirsch talks about a problem of contrast. And it's something I've thought a lot about, and surely other people have written about it and talked about it, but I think he, he, he puts it in pretty helpfully concise terms. So, uh, from late in the essay. In the 20th century, however, the dialectical evolution of poetic styles gave way to a more dramatic and irreparable kind of breach. So he was talking about the, uh, he has actually a good and very long section about uh, form and content and tensions between form and content. And it's, um, it's nothing new necessarily, but it's very well put and well done. And, um, you know, I recommend, I recommend the essay to anybody. Uh, it's, it's a smart, it's a smart essay. But uh, let's go back to the end. In the 20th century, however, the dialectical evolution of poetic styles gave way to a more dramatic and irreparable kind of breach. With modernism and postmodernism, each of the arts turned against what had long been considered its defining technique. Just as composers rejected tonality and painters rejected representation, poets stopped writing in verse. The regular patterns of rhythm and rhyme that had been the essence of poetry in every culture since ancient times. In each genre, this rejection was initially experienced as a liberation that made new kinds of beauty possible. The first generation of modernists and their audiences knew the conventions that were being dispensed with so they could appreciate the extent and purpose of the transgression. Uh, I thought this is this just uh, exactly right. Um, uh, I, I, it made me think of an experience I've had um, a number of times in museums. If you go to a museum with a good range of art from different periods, you, you can sort of experience it in a sort, you know, roughly in order. You go from classical art or even ancient Egyptian art, ancient uh, Indian art, um, into, uh, um, you know, the, the little remains from the Dark Ages, or, you know, depending on what part of the world you're looking at, medieval art, Renaissance art. You, you see a, not a progression exactly. I, I think, you know, um, as, as plenty of other people have pointed out, I don't think, I don't think progress is quite uh, is a term that quite makes sense in application to art, but there is a tradition, right? Uh, Eliot talks about in his uh, um, tradition of the individual talent, you know, every new major contribution to the tradition reorders all of those works that um, preceded it. Uh, Kafka, sorry, Borges, um, uh, in, a, in, a, in an essay, um, Kafka and his precursors, I think is how it's translated. Um, I say that not because I'm brilliant and, and speak Spanish fluently, but because I, 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 I just think that's the translation I read. Um, in, uh, in his essay, Kafka and his Precursors, says that, that uh, you know, in typical Borgesian style, that uh, Kafka or any great artist actually invents his predecessors uh, or his precursors. I can't fucking remember now. Um, that the, the, the qualities that existed in those earlier writers or earlier artists didn't actually exist in them until the later genius was, you know, came around to bring them out. Um, so, uh, you know, you, 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 if you walk through a museum in this way, you get to, uh, the Renaissance, you get to the Baroque period, you get, you know, into the, finally into the modernists and, and even the different degrees of modernism, um, uh, you know, from, uh, something like Dalit surrealism, um, the Kiriko to, uh, into the, you know, the genuine abstract expressionists or the minimalists, you know, even, you know, I, I came upon, it wasn't Malevich's white on white, but it was some other, you know, basically all white painting in some museum. And I think because I had come to it after having seen, uh, paintings 
and, and sculptures that preceded it in, you know, um, in, uh, in time, if not always in, you know, some notion of progress, uh, it's, it can be really moving. You know, I don't, I don't dismiss minimalist or ex self-styled ex experiments, a different question, but, um, uh, you know, the, the, uh, imagism, the, the deeply broken free verse is someone like William Carlos Williams. Um, but what I think Kirsch gets just exactly right is that much of the power of this stuff comes from its immediate juxtaposition with the, uh, the much more metrically, you know, formally traditional work that, that came before it. So when you see that, uh, strict iambic pentameter and rhyme say is an option, then breaking from that is, is startling can be bracing, can be exciting. Uh, I, I do think there's a little bit of a, a um, there's a middle step. I think of what what I call verlieb or think of as verlieb, ver, you know, free verse in French, literally. Um, but that's, a, you know, that uh, is something like Dover Beach or uh, Proof Rock or uh, even, I am just a fucking sucker for um, certain sentimental poems. Um, I think of uh, A Farewell by Coventry Padmore. Uh, these are poems that have rhyme and they have meter, but neither is regular. Uh, and in Patmore's poem, if I recall, he even ends on an unrhymed line, which is sort of wonderful because it's about a, a breakup. So um, there are people who do something like this today. I think Aaron Pachigian has done that pretty nicely with some of his uh, Sappho translations. Um, uh, uh, there's... Um, I think that A.S. Tollings observed, at least in my, in my presence, that uh, dog roll as a term, you know, once was a little bit more specific in its application. It didn't just mean shitty poetry, but it meant specifically rhyme without meter, uh, which is something you see, you know, from from uh, uh, people here and then. Brian Wilson's Will Sonnets have it. I hate the name Will Sonnets, though I really like some of those poems. Um, it's dying, yeah. That's unfortunate. Great poems. I don't like, don't stop saying Wilson. It's, it's just, it doesn't make sense. Um, every podcast should have a beef. So I guess I'm starting my first beef here. No, I guess I already started with, well, anyway. Uh, so I, I think that, that Kirsch makes a really good point here because, and he goes on and he kind of completes the thought. Um, the difficult glory of high modernism lasted about a generation, say from 1910 to 1940. But once modernism itself became the canon, artists and audiences gradually lost the ability to extend or even fully appreciate its achievements because they never mastered the conventions that modernism overthrew. This great de-skilling combined with the rise of mass media and the democratization of culture resulted in a fracturing of the arts after World War II. In different ways, music, painting, and poetry each split in two a cerebral avant-garde version devoted to extending the modernist experiment and a popular version that appealed to mass audiences without knowledge of the arts tradition and conventions. Uh, so he, he makes the distinction. He actually fudges this a little bit because he later brings in a third category. But basically, he says that there are three, you know, in the new era, there's sort of three types of 
poets. You can be a popular poet, which is to say either a Ruby Coer style Insta poet, um, or uh, you know even more popularly uh, a, a um, singer songwriter or rapper. Really, really, I think rap is where a lot of um, the uh, the tradition of um, pride in and virtuosity in uh, 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 wordplay meter rhyme. Who know you? Who rhyme, Who brags about being good at rhyming anymore? You know, the uh, um, the Renaissance poets used to, but today it's rappers. Rappers, you know, are the ones who make that boast. But you know, he says basically you can either be a popular poet, and in that case, you you um, you get an audience, but you lose a certain degree of prestige, and maybe you know. He also says basically you know, sort of what you're making is, is ultimately a little bit, uh, slighter, lesser than, um, than it would have been, uh, in, in another era. I don't, you know, it's a shaky claim. Um, and then, so but that's one category. There's popular poets and, the, and then the academic poets, which, and he, he's, again, he smushes together a couple of concepts here. He says, um, there are these poets who retreated to the academy. That's certainly true. Um, to continue the tradition of high modernism, which almost feels like a contradiction in terms, um, but this basically suggests that that there are the the devoted avant-gardists and post-avant-gardists, and now sort of post-post-avant-gardists, and they retreated to the academy to impress each other with their work and and to be read by nobody. He then does at the very end of the essay, after um, giving what feels kind of like a, a little bit of a a silly concession to to um, nonsense poetry, high nonsense, but the best of nonsense poetry. He he calls out John Ashbery and says basically, "Hey, everybody liked John Ashbery, and and it's easy for anyone to read." He says a really bizarre statement. He says, um, uh, "Even a difficult poet is more accessible to the common reader than a serialist composer is to the common concert goer." That seems not. Uh, true at all. Um, and he, he quotes from a John Ashbery poem. Maybe part of his point is, is by, by quoting from the poem, which is a um, really even more than the average um, Ashbery poem. It's, it's sort of a, it's a piece of nonsense. Um, artful, stylish, sexy nonsense, but, but nonsense. Um, maybe his point is that, you know, read this and you can see that I only halfway mean what I'm saying. But after this concession, um, which doesn't really make a lot of sense to me, he 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 concludes by uh, you know he's he's tipped his hat to Ashbery, and then he he you know he performs I think an understandable institutional genuflection to the new criterion. But he introduces basically his third secret category of contemporary poets, which is you have the popular poets, you have the the academic poets, who are you know almost by definition the sort of avant-gardists, and then you have ha ha. Um, uh, the, the new criterion offers a home for poets who aspire to work in that tradition, this being the tradition of Milton, Pope, and Hopkins. Um, and our correspondent is already a subscriber, so the guy who wrote it in the game is a subscriber. So, good, you know, good. Uh, the good news is, subscriber who didn't get poetry, now you, you, know, you to belong to a magazine, you'll get um, poems from people who write in the tradition. So, he can, you know, this is his, sort of his third category, is the, the, I guess, contemporary traditional the, the you know, we, we've used the word the term new formalist for a long time and I know of almost nobody who likes that uh, term or and I, I certainly can't think of anybody 
who writes poetry today who would claim it proudly. Um, but I, you know, I think, again, uh, it's, a, it's a very smart essay um, with a lot of really rich and, and you know, strong stuff in it. I, I, I found myself stepping back from this categorization and, and wondering about how we experience poems. Again, I, I like that on getting poetry as the, the kind of the opening part of the, 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 the starting place for this essay. He says, um, you know, I don't get poetry. And not Adam Kirsch, the guy who writes in, uh, whose question he's answering. And, you know, that is, is still, I think, um, that gets to the, the marrow of what I worry about and wonder about. And it, it occurred to me that there are, you know, poetry exists um, from generation to generation. Not, so I, as I've said it in other places, a collection of poems is a just an absolutely ephemeral unit. There are people I know who really care about composing a whole collection and putting it in order and it matters and it's a theme and it's a project. And I think that's mostly just nonsense. I think I think that the, the unit of poem that matters is the individual poem. And, and it's because when a poem survives, uh, which is to say it makes it uh, from one period to another for people to read, and generally in an anthology or generally in a, you know some kind of collection, it survives on its own merit. It doesn't generally survive because of its neighbors and the collection in which it originally appeared. And this happens because somebody passes it along, shares it. Um, so much of this shit takes place online now, so we, you know, we think of reposting or resharing or however uh, a poem. And it, I, got, I got to thinking uh, there, that maybe rather than trying to divide poets into three categories and... and there's a little bit of a, I think, totally understandable, and so, uh, uh, but but a little bit of a, a snotty or not snobby, snobby, snobbish impulse in in slipping in this kind of traditionalist poet category. I, I found much more um, useful the, the the following division, which is that there there are three reasons that one might pass a poem along that I can think of. Certainly, that maybe um, uh, come up today, uh, especially in um, on the internet, which is where again so much of this takes place, for better or worse. Um, the, the the first and the most obvious is that you, you share a poem, you pass a poem along because it's by somebody you like or care about or have a relationship with, and that's fine. That's not. I don't think that's bad. I think that's true of every field. Um, the second, and maybe this is sort of the thornier category, is you pass along a poem because you want to make a point. And either that poem makes that point very well, it's a piece of you know, effective rhetoric, or something about the poem or the poet uh, it proves you right or proves you virtuous or, or good or in the know in some significant way. And then the third category uh, is you, you pass along a poem because you liked it. You liked it. It made you feel something. It made you laugh. It made you cry. This is, by the way, a very good essay by David Yezzi in The New Criterion about um, why poems are like jokes. This is from years ago. Definitely worth looking up. I'll try to put a link in if I can uh, in the show notes. But these, you know, these three categories, you, you, you share a poem because of the poet. You share it because you want to you want to make a point or you share it because you liked it. And then that third category, I actually include both, you know, 
pop poetry, as, as Kirsch would put it, and art poetry, you know, to use his distinction. I would include their Billie Eilish songs and, uh, you know, uh, um, Joshua Megan poems. Um, because they, I think that this is the key thing, that there's an immediate, and not purely immediate, but there is a genuine personal response. There's a pleasure in it. And this does, you know, I think, where I think Adam Kirsch is really, really uh, right on the money. You see it right in the subtitle of this essay is on deriving pleasure from poetry. He he gets um, lost in the weeds a little bit, but this is this is I think really the the, the central question um, is what is the pleasure we derive from poetry, and how do we derive more of it? Um, and outside of that, poems that don't have any interest in that. Uh, Maybe that's part of why, um, you know, our reviewer and, and my wife and I and all of our friends have gotten to have this, um, this ennui. I don't know. But uh, I want to end this uh, first episode with um, a poem that I like. And I won't say a whole lot about it. I'll just read it for you because I think it's really fucking good. Uh, I'll, let's go to that now. Okay, we're back. Uh, this is a poem by Fenton Johnson, uh, whom I'd never heard of until I stumbled on this poem some months ago. Uh, there is a, I found out, there is a Fenton Johnson who is a writer who is alive today. He's, uh, I think, a professor in Arizona, and I'm sure a, a, a swell guy. This is a different Fenton Johnson. Um, this Fenton Johnson's been dead for quite a while. He was associated with the Harlem Renaissance and um, preceded it, I think, slightly. Uh, but this is just a fucking terrific poem. Uh, all right, so the poem's called Tired. I may read it twice. We'll see. Tired by Fenton Johnson. I am tired of work. I am tired of building up somebody else's civilization. Let us take a rest, Melissa Jane. I will go down to the last chance saloon drink a gallon or two of gin, shoot a game or two of dice, and sleep the rest of the night on one of Mike's barrels. You will let the old shanty go to rot, the white people's clothes turn to dust, and the Calvary Baptist Church sink to the bottomless pit. You will spend your days forgetting you married me, and your nights hunting the warm gin Mike serves the ladies in the rear of the last chance saloon. Throw the children into the river. Civilization has given us too many. It is better to die than it is to grow up and find out that you are colored. Pluck the stars out of the heavens. The stars mark our destiny. The stars marked my destiny. I am tired of civilization. God, that just kicks me in the stomach every time I read it. I mean, I think, you know, not only do I read here, uh, you know, the where Auden got funeral blues from, but I also read here the basically the entirety of Everett Maddox's career. And I, I like Everett Maddox. 
Um, but the, just the cleanness and simplicity and just absolute heart crushing bleakness of this poem, uh, is hard to compare with, with anything else. Um, I'm going to, I'm going to read it one more time, uh, because I just, I never heard of it. I'd never heard of this guy. Um, and I may be out of the loop, but, um, I always like hearing a poem twice if I think it's any good and it's a short one. So I'm going to read this and then, uh, say goodbye until I start doing this dumb shit again next week or so. All right. Tired by Fenton Johnson. I am tired of work. I'm tired of building up somebody else's civilization. Let us take a rest, Melissa Jane. I will go down to the last chance saloon, drink a gallon or two of gin, shoot a game or two of dice, and sleep the rest of the night on one of Mike's barrels. You will let the old shanty go to rot. The white people's clothes turn to dust and the Calvary Baptist Church sink to the bottomless pit. You will spend your days forgetting you married me, and your nights hunting the warm gin Mike serves the ladies in the rear of the Last Chance Saloon. Throw the children into the river. Civilization has given us too many. It is better to die than it is to grow up and find out that you are colored. Pluck the stars out of the heavens. The stars mark our destiny. The stars marked my destiny. I am tired of civilization. <coughs> Excuse me. Whew. God, that's a killer. All right, well... Uh, Slee Ricketts is a podcast that I'm trying to fucking piece together and God knows, um, whether it will survive, uh, my wager with myself. So Stephen Hawking famously made a wager with Kip Thorne, whereby if, uh, the, the short version being, as I dumbly remember that, um, he was really invested in the idea that black holes were real, um, which they turned out to be. And the, the, the bet was, uh, if, if we get this proof that black holes are real, then I, Stephen Hawking, will buy you, Kip Thorne, uh, a year subscription to Penthouse. Not because I, I want to do that, but because I will have some consolation if black holes turn out not to be real, and that I won't have to do this. So he was betting against his own interest as a hedge, as an insurance policy, and I feel like that's what I'm doing with this stupid fucking title for this podcast. So, um, uh, if, uh, if this thing disappears, then I won't have to host a podcast called Slee Rickets anymore. But at the moment I do, if you'd like to get in touch, uh, you can write me at sleerickets at gmail.com. That's S L E E R I C K E T S at gmail.com. Or just go to my webpage, which is matthewbuckleysmith.com. And that has a, a contact page there. Uh, please do write if you have questions, um, suggestions for future topics or guests, um, uh, or complaints, I suppose I'll, I'll field those as well. Um, do rate highly, uh, review well, uh, and subscribe, uh, often. 
on uh, iTunes, Spotify, uh, Stitcher, wherever else I've managed to get this thing up. Uh, the show is produced in North Carolina, and the music comes courtesy of Eternal Producer. Thanks very much. Till next time.